Good evening, everyone. My name is Yusuf Abdulkadir. I'm the director for the Central New York chapter of the New York Civil Liberties Union. I want to thank our partners at Color of Change, the National Action Network, Central New York chapter, the NAACP, Center for Community Alternatives, and so many other organizations for helping us to bring this really important community conversation to Syracuse. Um, folks who do a lot of work in criminal justice reform statewide often hear a lot of New York City folks. Um, and even though I'm from New York City, I'm representing the 315 tonight. And so we want to make sure that folks know that Syracuse cares about this issue. That in central New York, we don't want our communities to be jailed. We don't want our communities to be over-policed. And we expect a different type of New York State. If we're going to be the progressive state, then we've got to start acting like it. I'm going to introduce the panelists, but in a tradition that we always have um, in Syracuse, in particular when you're at Syracuse University, we recognize that we are on the Onondaga's ancestral land, uh, and it's important that we acknowledge that um, because these issues are connected, and moreover, we cannot forget that the indigenous peoples who are still here today are still fighting as well. Um, and so we acknowledge that we are on ancestral land, and we pay homage and, and gratitude for the nation for allowing us to continue to be on this land. Our first uh, panelist that we'll have here tonight, uh, who is going to be on the stage in a moment, um, comes from a great organization that does, does really good work. Um, after more than a decade of practicing law, Monica Smith joined the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights as a, a criminal justice program officer. She works on nationwide criminal justice reform efforts focused on ending pretrial detention and mass incarceration. Monica earned a BA in political science from Xavier University of Louisiana and a JD from the Southern University Law Center. If Monica, if you could please come up here. And we can also clap for Monica. Give her a nice Syracuse welcome. Uh -oh, okay. um, next, we have a Syracuse local, really a new person to the community. Uh, he is the Reverend uh, Pastor at uh, Plymouth Church. Reverend Eric Jackson comes to us by way of Plymouth Church. Reverend Jackson has served on the Executive Committee of the Hillsborough Association, Annual Planning Committee of the New Hampshire Conference, and the Congressional Development and Standing Committee of New York Co Conference's Metropolitan Association. He earned his Master's in Divinity from the Theological School of Drew University, and is finishing his Doctor of Ministry degree at Hartford Seminary. If, if the Reverend, please join us. Syracuse is filled with community organizations and activists that are working deeply and are deeply committed and rooted to these issues. And one of those are the Center for Communal Alternatives. Um, we're going to bring up Kelly Gonzalez, who as of May 2017 has served as, as director of CCA's Syracuse and Rochester offices. Ms. Gonzalez has been with CCA since 2013, starting as a student advocate, then moving to program director for student advocacy, and then to director of advocacy services, where she oversees CCA's client-specific planning, reentry clinic, transition coach program, and student advocacy program. She holds a Bachelor of Science degree in Human Service Studies from Cornell University, and a Juris Doctorate from Northeastern University. She is admitted to the bar in New York State and in the US District Court, Northern District of New York. Kelly Gonzalez. As I said in the beginning, one of the organizations that have been really the major sponsors of this event is Color of Change. And we wouldn't have a full panel if we didn't have the folks who are from Color of Change, an important racial justice organization. 
Representing Color of Change tonight is Scott Roberts, who is the Senior Director of Criminal Justice Campaigns for Color of Change. He leads digital campaigners, researchers, and field organizers in rallying support to end mass incarceration, fight the way our society criminalizes, uh, criminalizes black people, and secure more humane treatment for all those in contact with the justice system. Some of his team's key accomplishments include making New York the first city in the country to offer free phone calls from jail and holding uh, Color of Change Mama's Day bailout, where Color of Change and partners raised bail money to free nearly 150 black women and mothers uh, around Mother's Day. Uh, please, Scott, if you could join us. And last, uh, but certainly not least, is my colleague from the New York Civil Liberties Union, um, Nicole Triplett. It would be good if I, if I could actually say the New York Civil Liberties Union, right? Um, Nicole is a policy counsel in the advocacy department, uh, excuse me, currently the policy department, working primarily on human rights and criminal justice issues. Prior to joining the NYCLU, Nicole clerked for the Honorable Bernice B. Donald on the US Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit and practiced at a law firm before starting the clerkship. While in law school, she was selected as co-chair in her law school civil rights clinic and led her team to successfully litigating a whistleblower protection case before the US Court of Appeals for the DC Circuit. Nicole. So we're gonna get right to it. We're not gonna you know, try to belabor the issue. I think the video was pretty clear when it talked about what is it that is at stake? What are we fighting for and why is this the moment that we need to rise to show that we're not gonna allow to, allow to have any rollbacks? Um, but bail is such a large issue and people don't understand the basics of it. And sometimes before you can actually get in the conversation, you have to have some even playing field where we're all on the same page. And so, Nicole, I'm gonna start with you. Um, if you can talk to us about the constitutional right to be presumed innocent until proven guilty. Um, and, and in doing so, um, can you please lay out just a little bit about what New York's original bail law was, um, the nine components of it, and, and just why there was a need for change? Sure, thank you, Yusuf. Um, yes, yeah, so bail is complicated. Uh, we have in our constitution certain rights uh, that are supposed to dictate how we're how people who are accused of crimes are supposed to be treated by the courts. And they're rights, and so many of that, much of that has to be materialized and has to be fulfilled, and some of them are principles and, and promises that uh, have been disconnected to realities. And so what we realized at New York Civil Liberties Union, we have eight offices across the state, one including he, and here in Syracuse, is that there was a huge disconnect with what uh, the courts and, and what the law said we're supposed to be treated as innocent before proven guilty or if proven guilty. Um, but what we were seeing is that people were being treated guilty until proven innocent or if proven innocent, um, much, in this, much in the way of how bail operated. And so I just want to just um, make it very clear. So across the state, we were hearing varied uh, pre-trial experiences. We we're hearing that, oh, maybe bail practices are just isolated to good actors versus bad actors. Maybe this is not like a systemic issue. Maybe bail practices or any of those uh, isolated harms that we're hearing or stories or tragedies that we're hearing is really isolated to New York City. That's a New York City, a downstate problem. Or maybe that's an over there type of problem or over that community over there or with that sheriff or with that judge. But what we were finding is that it was far more pervasive than that. We issued bunch of month, uh, several uh, public records requests across the state, and we found out three things. One, that the majority of people in jail, pre-trial, on bail, were there for relatively low, 
low-level offenses. We're talking about misdemeanors and below, inclu including even violations, uh, which is to say that many people were in on, um, were not in on, on serious crimes. We're hearing that from certain district attorneys that we only use bail when it's needed or when we need to ensure someone back to court for the serious, serious cases. But that was not the case. The second thing that we found out that the majority of people in jail on bail were in on bail amounts $2,500 and below. $2,500 and below, which strongly suggested that we were criminalizing poverty. The third thing that we found out was that this was a systemic problem uh, across the state, but that was disproportionately affecting black and brown New Yorkers. That black New Yorkers were two times more likely to spend a night in jail after bail was set than white New Yorkers. On the converse, white New Yorkers were two times more likely to be released from jail after bail was set. And so these stark racial disparities were unequivocal, and it, just all of this, with all of that, suggested that we had a strong, uh, or excuse me, a, a systemic problem that needed to be addressed. And so while many of us have been told that, oh, we have a progressive state, we have a progressive bail statute that only is used in certain cases to ensure people back to court, we saw something differently. And I think that you know, is comprehensive of what the problem is, and it shows the kind of breadth of, of both how we had a constitutional right that kind of is really treated differently for different people and the variety of reasons and excuses that folks had to not uphold those basic rights. But um, what I think is really interesting is we often, a lot of us have watched court shows, maybe hopefully not Judge Judy, but probably <laughs> Law and Order and some other shows like that. And, um, we have this fictitious notion of how the criminal legal process works. Um, Kelly, you work in an organization um, who sees and represents clients from a variety of perspectives, a variety of challenges, um, and these directly impacted uh, individuals are, are impacted by the criminal legal system. Um, and if, if you could just walk us through like, what happens when a person gets arrested and really how do they go through the system and, and where do they interact with bail in particular, and, and, and maybe we'll, we'll kind of go just a little bit beyond that. And then the last part is um, how these help to facilitate, to apply pressure to create the circumstance where people want to cop to plea deals. Thank you. Um, so yeah, and before I was at CCA, I was actually up at the SU Law Clinic supervising um, students doing criminal cases, violations, misdemeanors, and I had the privilege of representing a number of people in criminal court directly as a defense attorney. So to start from the beginning, you know, you get arrested, the police can decide to take you into custody or not. Um, some people are arrested and simply given an appearance ticket to come back to court, and they do. Um, but if you're taken into custody, then you're going to be brought here in Syracuse, and you're going to be spending the night at the Justice Center. Um, you're going to be seeing a judge. Um, typically what happens is if you have money, um, then you can be calling your private attorney, and you might be able to talk to your attorney. But for a lot of our clients, um, they're not speaking to an attorney until maybe 10 minutes, an hour, before they go in front of an arraignment judge. Um, so here we have assigned counsel. There'll be an attorney who will be sitting in court. Um, they'll go in the back in holding, and they will interview whoever's in holding, meaning people who are in custody, um, who were arrested the night before, perhaps. And you're really having a very short conversation with your client. Where are you from? Are you originally from Syracuse? Are you working? Um, if you had to post bail, how much you could come up with? You're looking at few documents, the charges essentially, but you don't, you didn't, before didn't get a lot of discovery. 
Um, and so then this person is going to be in front of a judge, an arraignment judge. Um, the district attorney or the assistant district attorney will be there. And this attorney who you've just met and had a 10 minute conversation is, would, this is under the old system, um, do their best to make an argument that you were not a flight risk because that's really what bail was supposed to be, is, is supposed to be to ensure your, your return. Um, and you've just met this person. Most of our clients want to talk to us about what actually happened, if they did it, if they didn't do it. Um, has anybody called my family? How are my kids doing? I can't lose my job. I'm supposed to be at work today. Um, you know, what's going to happen to me? It's an extremely, extremely scary experience. Um, and so the um, assistant district attorney would make a argument. You know, they'll read the charges, et cetera. Uh, your attorney would enter a not guilty plea. Um, and then the district attorney, the judge would usually go to the ADA and say, do you have a bail request? And they'll make a request. And in my experience before, it was extremely arbitrary. Um, we had a client at, uh, who was held on $5,000 for stealing a pork chop. Mm. That's been a good pork chop. Um, uh, we had a client at CCA who was a student. Um, this was before Raise the Age, but this was a student who was 16, 17, and he had a flyer that he had taken off of the hallway, and he had lit it on fire and then stomped it out and did some kind of prank. So not only did he get kicked out of school, but he also um, got, he appeared on an appearance ticket, but when he was in front of the judge, the judge decided to hold him on bail. And it was a nominal bail, and he spent three days at Jamesville being held on bail. And so the defense attorney really would just make their best you know, chance to say, my client's gonna come back to court, they, they've lived here, and then it's up to the judge to decide whether or not to hold that person. Thank you, and we're, we're gonna talk about discretion yes. a little bit later on in the conversation, but I'm happy that we kind of doused it out now. I think we're kind of all on a basic level playing field. We understand the process. We understand what the Constitution says. We understand a little bit about the basic ideas about how, what happens when you get arrested and where you go along the process. Um, but bail and, and the way with which the criminal legal system operates doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists as a part of a long history, a history that is very racialized, a history that is um, unjust, which is why we're explicitly using the term criminal legal system and not criminal justice system. Um, but Monica, if you could break down for us the connection between bail, pretrial services and detention, and mass incarceration, and why was this law needed at this moment in New York State's history? So I think the primary reason why um, this moment, this was the moment for bail reform is because we were able to see through the work of organizations like NICLU what the disruptive and harmful impacts that bail was having on families. And it, we could see that clearly bail was nothing more than wealth-based detention, that it really didn't have to do with a person's risk of flight or whether or not they returned to court. Um, what we were able to, prior to working at RFK, I worked at a nonprofit in Harlem and we were with 16 to 21 year olds who were detained at Rikers Island. And what we found out was what they needed to return to court was Metro cards and phone call reminders and a person to knock on their door and say, hey, just a reminder, you have court tomorrow or did you remind a reminder to go to school or an escort or someone to help them re-enroll in school after they spent a couple nights on Rikers. And so we found that these low-tech, low really, high-touch um, efforts community-led, community-curated services could 
go much further to, to ensure a person's return to court than any monetary amount. That what people need are rides, you know, arranging with like local churches to get people to um, court in more rural areas. They need child care services. What they don't need is to be locked away in a cage, to lose their job, to lose their housing, um, to have their lives totally disrupted. Because we know that when communities are whole, they're safer. And we also know that when people are able to um, return to their families and return to their lives, that is what will ensure their return to court, um, not an arbitrary monetary amount, which really only results in their caging. We're gonna play another kind of short clip here. I, I'm sure you don't wanna hear us talking all day. Well, you actually do wanna hear us talking, otherwise you wouldn't be here. But we wanna break it up a bit to make sure that folks can kind of get a clearer picture as to what's at stake and what's going on. So if, if folks could make sure to text bail to 225568, um, to send in your question. We'll make sure to try to get those from folks. Uh, we'll make sure to try to elicit those from people. We'll try to make sure that we are communicating with people and, and allowing us in the kind of town hall portion to have that dialogue. Um, in addition to that, there's a, a tremendous amount of opportunities for folks to have touch points. But let's start this one from the beginning as opposed to at that timestamp. This video talks about kind of what happened just when the law went into effect in 2020. If we started over and we just went back to square one uh, temporarily while they actually put, you know, put partisanship aside, put experts in the room, and let's have a bail reform that makes sense. He wants to see judges get back the discretion to set bail. Under these laws, for many cases, judges are not able to set bail for some misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. They strip judges, elected judges, from the ability to determine threat levels to public safety. They handcuffed our prosecutors, muzzled crime victims, and empowered criminals in a courtroom. But one criminal defense attorney says this is what the criminal justice system in the state has needed for decades. The criminal justice system worked for people who had money. And now, with these criminal justice reforms, we've made it a little more equal. Because ultimately, the question has to be, the criminal justice system either works for everybody, otherwise it doesn't work. Attorney Lee Kinlan says it's going to take more than a week to work out these new laws, and he says he's tired of people building up fear throughout the state. That there's this amorphous group of people who are going to do harm to you and your community, and I'm the politician that can protect you from this scary group. And you know, you get votes that way, you get political donations that way, but we don't get any closer to solving the real problems in the criminal justice. We we set this up tonight in this way because we wanted to make it clear what it is that we're fighting for, the contrast between a system that said that if you stole a pork chop, you're gonna pay $5,000 to be in jail, which you would then be coerced because you're in jail and you wanna leave and you may lose your custody of your child or you may not be able to give your grandmother her insulin or you may not be able to go to uh, an appointment that you need to or your life is not just disrupted but destroyed. Um, and not for, significant issues, but for really low-level issues, for even issues as small as, again, stealing a pork chop. Um, and what that can mean for a person's life not only funnels them into the criminal legal system because 
they're more likely to cop to a plea deal, not because that means they're more likely for the DA to use as an opportunity to talk about, look at the number of convictions that we have, but there's a whole ecosystem of players in this process, from the DAs to the judges to, um, as, as was said, really, law enforcement officials. But we can't forget the media. And the media has played a tremendous role in trying to create the image. And in fact, in many of the interviews that we've had, they want to juxtapose it as if there are two equal sides to this argument. And we've often said, either you have a constitution or you don't. And if you have a constitution, then there are certain things that everyone should have as fundamental basic rights. And if you don't, then you don't believe in the, the republic that we perpetuate, that we do. And so if you could, Scott, if you can, after having watched this film, um, recognize it didn't take law before the law was passed for folks to say, we're going to roll it back. I think like days before it actually came into effect, they were already talking about, we need to change it. It hasn't even come into effect yet. By the way, it's March 5th. It's only been in effect about 60 or so days. Um, and we're still having a conversation that requires us to talk about rolling it back. Um, but can you talk a little bit about um, the effect that a campaign of fear misinformation from those players um, have had and how that's erupted statewide? Um, and in particular, Color of, Chain, uh, Color of Change has written on the media's role in shaping and influencing the public's perception about safety. Um, how has some of the reporting on the current bail law or the response to bail reform perpetuated tactics by earlier um, instances like Willie Horton and Lee Atwater campaign efforts from previous generations? That's a great question. Um, I do think that the um, Willie Horton. Um, Who's Willie Horton? Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's a prime <laughs> example of, uh, from, from history. Uh, and I want to get to that in a second. I would say that this is the oldest trick in their bag, you know, in their bag of tricks. Um, and uh, you could go um, all the way back to s slavery times and point to the kind of fear mongering used by the um, land holding class in the South to keep poor whites aligned with uh, the idea of slavery by saying, hey, if we free these people, then it's going to be put you and all your families in danger, right? And you can trace that line of storytelling and mythologizing. Uh, playing on racial stereotypes and people's fears for their safety all the way up until right now in this conversation that we, ha that we have to have, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, the Willie Horton case uh, is a prime example. So I'll try to summarize it really quickly because I know um, we don't have a lot of time. But uh, this goes back to 1988 in the presidential election. George H.W. Bush was running uh, as a Republican. He was up against Michael Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts um, and um, had, um, was the Democratic nominee. Uh, Willie Horton was a man who had been convicted of uh, murder in Massachusetts. Massachusetts at the time had a uh, furlough program, like a work fur furlough program that allowed folks to be released uh, for short periods of time uh, for work. Um, Dukakis had not started the program, but he, he had continued it. Um, Willie Horton, many, you know, thousands of people participated in this furlough program, right? It, mm -hmm. it, was, it was intended to rehab, help people rehabilitate. Uh, it was shown to, to be, have success in doing that. Uh, but Willie Horton was one instance where uh, he um, <laughs> took advantage of the program and he committed a uh, really heinous crime that included a murder um, and rape. And um, Michael Dukakis's I'm sorry, George H.W. Bush's campaign leveraged that 
uh, against Dukakis, you know, talked about using some of the exact same languages we see today, um, of the revolving door of people going in and out of prison um, and saying that we're not holding people accountable. Um, that worked like a charm. It was probably the most damaging thing to Dukakis and the reason why we have now have a legacy of Bushes who've been in the White House. Um, and we all know what that got us. Um, but um, what it really got us, it was a whole generation of politicians afraid to embrace criminal justice reform, right? One instance used to scare uh, an entire nation of, of people in power um, to, to run away, basically, from saying that they're going to rehabilitate people, that we need us to re release more people from our prisons. And it's taken us pretty much until the last several years, right, to get to a point where we actually have momentum going back in the, in the right direction. Um, and we're seeing, the, we're seeing the same thing happening here. Actually, I, I would definitely say worse things are happening here. One is there's not a Willie Horton of bail reform, right, in, in New York City, right? There's um, most of the stories that are being reported by the media are pretty empty. They're really just sensationalized, right? This person uh, is accused of this crime. This is one of the things that stood out to me from, um, even from the speech from this Republican, right? The way that he referred to these people, uh, to people as criminals, right? Um, these folks are not criminals. They have not been convicted of a crime. Um, and so that's the, the little things they do, right, to, to, make, to try to make it scarier. But the stories that we're seeing are really, you know, just telling us this person was released after being accused of committing this crime, right? There's not the follow-up of what happens to the person uh, the in the vast majority of stories. And then we're just seeing um, just completely false stuff being run in the media. You know, there was a story on Long Island, a uh, homeless man that was, been, uh, was a witness in a case, and he was murdered. Um, and immediately, police and the prosecutor tried to um, blame both bail reform and the discovery reform law. That means that you have to hand over information to the, that the prosecutors have to hand over information to defense attorneys um, s sooner in the process. Um, immediately tried to blame the reforms um, for this mass murder. It was the police's and the prosecutor's fault. They um, had this person as a witness. They knew that he was testifying against people who were potentially dangerous to him. They knew that they were turning over his information. They didn't provide him with any protection, you know. And then when something happened to him, they immediately tried to exploit it for political gain. So I think, you know, this, um, again, like I said, this trick, it, 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 they keep using it because it keeps working, right? The, um, if we're not doing the work to inoculate um, ourselves and our communities against these messages, if we're not asking the question around why these stories are being reported in this way, the fundamental thing is that there's a really dangerous relationship a lot of the times between media and law enforcement where you, know, you, you, you read stories in the paper all the time that are just the police's version of what happened, right? And um, media often is so dependent on that relationship that they will, that they're easily kind of exploited themselves into telling the story um, that law enforcement wants told and um, it's just like clickbait, it's sensational. So the way that they're reporting on it is intentionally meant to sensationalize these stories. Um, and you know, they're playing on racial stereotypes, people's fears. Uh, and I think it's just, it's just really critical that, um, like I said, we inoculate ourselves against those messages. Thanks, Scott. Monica, I had a question for you, but I'm, I'm gonna come back to you in a moment. Um, it put me on a strain to think about 
the way with which locally, and again, you know, we are all a part of a, a state that has different regions that, um, you know, being from New York City, I know that we, we have this phrase that anything above the Bronx is upstate New York. Um, <laughs> and I learned very quickly living in Syracuse that this is not upstate New York, apparently. This is central New York, right? <laughs> it's kind of in the name, central New York chapter. I didn't know that when I applied. Um, but upstate is really like places like Messina and places along the, the, the Canadian border. But unfortunately, there's this idea that the rest of the state outside of New York City must be experiencing things all the same. And the tactics and strategies have also been such that, hey, let's try this in New York City, let's try this in Long Island, let's try in Westchester, let's try to get upstate communities um, to push back, to show, hey, we don't like this reform. But a few weeks ago, um, and I wanna just for a moment um, just say thank you to a few folks that are here from the Colony Legislature, um, I think, uh, Mary Kuhn, I think Vernon Williams uh, might be here. If you're here, if we can just give them a round of applause and I'll explain why in a moment. <laughs> Our Onondaga County Legislature recently voted in a resolution to ask New York State to roll these bills back and really a significant block of the, um, really the entire, I don't want to become partisan, so be clear, we're nonpartisan. But the, the entire Democratic wing of the, of, of, of the, uh, the county legislature basically said, no, we're not, we're not for this. And they didn't stand by silently when that happened. And even though they overwhelmingly overtook them, I think it was a moment of bravery and importance to stand on the issues. And so we want to commend you for that. Um, but we also want to commend the folks who showed up um, to say, hey, this doesn't represent our community. Of the 10 or so people who spoke, um, nine of them spoke in favor of keeping the law. And in fact, thinking about ways that we can make it better by talking about how we can do mental health services and talking about how we can invest in communities, how we can redirect dollars for jailing people into communities that are underserved and, and, and under-resourced. Um, but if you could, Reverend, um, because you were there, you spoke, you spoke well. It's why you're here today, because I was like, wow, we got to bring that brother to be on this, on this panel. Because you spoke powerfully, and you spoke with, with a clarion voice, and I think it's important um, for you to be here also because you're the pastor of a church, right? Plymouth Church, and for those who don't know, uh, Plymouth Church is a church that was active in the movements for abolition of slavery um, and was a stop on the Underground Railroad. Um, after, having come uh, after having just come to Syracuse um, and after having uh, just exited and ended Black History Month, we were reminded of how similar the criminal legal system operates today in ways that bondage and, and oppression in, in decades prior operated. Um, and as I said a few weeks ago, you were, you were at that rally and you were speaking, and I think it's important that you kind of try to express to people the relationship between the use of fear um, and, and, and how fear is used um, to control black and brown bodies then and, and to confine black and, black and brown bodies then and how that relates to the calls for rollbacks today um, and, and, and how have they manifested themselves in the local conversation. You got a tall order, Reverend. And the tall order started when you said I spoke powerfully at the, last, <laughs> at the press conference. <laughs> but thank you for having me here today. So you talk about history and, and, and how this manifests itself locally. I would say that uh, over what we have seen consistently 
throughout history is that we have a criminal justice system that is disproportionately uh, favored against black and brown bodies. Uh, let's take, for example, when, even when enslaved Africans came here, were not, excuse me, not came here, were forced over here, were forced here. The enslaved Africans, they put laws in place that said you could not practice the traditional medicine. You could not, there was also laws against drumming codes. Then you fast forward now uh, to, uh, to, to uh, the days when they put Jim Crow segregation in place. Take a look at that. And then after you see that, uh, what, was, what was created was so-called separate, separate but equal, but really it was separate but unequal. Uh, you look at what happened to, to Emmett Till in 1955, where a young, where a young man was accused of, uh, of, uh, accused of sexually harassing uh, a white woman, and uh, he, was, he was immediately, he was, uh, he was killed, and his, uh, and, his, and his murderers were let off the hook only, to the, only for it to be declared that this 13-year-old boy did nothing at all. Uh, you can look forward now, uh, to, to the, even to the present day, where we see what, in what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow, and how we have the school-to-prison pipeline. And what history has shown us over and over again is that we have a system, a criminal justice system, that is disproportionately favored against black and brown bodies. Uh, and I would say, I've lived in four states now, and I would say how I've, the way it's been manifested across the four different states, I've lived in a rural setting, I've lived in a small city, I've lived in a big city, New York City, um, I've lived out in, uh, in, the, I've lived in the suburbs, and all of those different locales and places, it still can, it manifests itself in the very same way. So I'm just going to give you locally how I want a good example of how I've seen it was when we were, I was having a conversation with someone um, in my office the other day, and what I heard with the new thing is, uh, is, is, that, uh, is that folks are being stopped if they don't flash their turn signals when you approach the stop sign. So the trick is, is that uh, we know that law is not really enforced, uh, not really enforced often, but what we've seen, what we've seen is, is that black and brown folks are the ones who are being stopped. And then what happens when you take it a step further and you are, and you are able to place that person in jail? Without them being able to be able to post, to have the access to be able uh, to post, to be able to, to, be able to be released from jail, um, they are being presumed guilty without even having a fair trial. So the way that I would say this shows up, once again, is through how it's always been manifested itself from the beginning, where we have a system that disproportionately is against black and brown bodies. Thank you. Uh, again, this is why I said we wanted to have a clarity for the conversation that we're having today. I want to remind folks to please, if you got questions, if you are, if you want to engage in the conversation, and later on, please text uh, bail b a i l uh, to two two five five six eight. Kelly, you know, in the beginning we talked about CCA and what CCA does, and and, and the work that you do in the community. Um, I want to ask you just straightforward: um, What have you seen? Since the, ball, since, the, since the law has come into effect, and what could this mean for your clients and the people that CCA represents? So, so first, to kind of go backwards before I go forwards, as an attorney, when my clients are being held on bail, um, you can 
witness the someone decompensating, quite frankly. Um, you first have a conversation, you're talking about the case, and then you have to go back to the Justice Center to visit your client, and you can witness the trauma, the terror, the desperation. Um, sometimes their mental health is decompensating. Um, they may have a substance use disorder, and they're um, suffering from that and withdrawal, and try having a conversation with your attorney when, you're, when, when that's the case. And also getting the phone calls from the families. And sometimes the family is saying, I need them to plead guilty because I need them to come home. Um, and sometimes those calls would come to the defense attorney too. And so you're being put in a position where you're doing just that, saying to your client, well, there's an offer on the table, time served, you could go home today, but you have to plead guilty. Now, um, what we're seeing is that people are released and they're actually able to participate in their own defense. Um, there's something that happens in court called mitigation. And we have a whole department that helps um, present mitigation to the court. And what that means is looking at the whole person and not just what they're being accused of, if in fact they, they're guilty, but really looking at the whole person and what is going to be best for them in society. Um, looking at, are they working? Are they in treatment? Um, what led up to the events of, of the incident that they're being charged with so that none of us want to be um, judged on the worst thing we've ever done. But the ability to participate in that mitigation with a mitigation specialist, with your defense attorney, is far greater when you're released. So now we have clients who, rather than languishing at the Justice Center, some people acknowledge, you know what, this stemmed from a substance use disorder. I want treatment. And we're able to get them treatment. They're able to continue working. They're able to basically help their own case. And what happens is people are given better plea deals. They're given better deals because they're out, because maybe the district attorney, maybe the judge says, it's not going to serve anyone to have this person plead guilty to a felony and go to state prison. It's not going to serve society. It's not going to serve their family. They're going to come out worse than they went in. But the ability to actually have your client out and not have that coercive nature of being desperate of how you're going to live day to day, how your family's going to survive day to day, has made a huge difference in um, keeping people connected to their community, connected to services, and also, at the end of the day, allowing them to fully participate in their own defense with their defense attorney so that they are given all of the benefits that the legal system affords them. They're given the right to go to trial if they want to, and they're not being coerced to take a deal, and that the sentence is fair and just and is equitable for what um, for really what this, the community is needing. And you know, we are about alternatives to incarceration, and we believe that um, for many, many individuals, community supports and community sentencing is best for everyone rather than locking people in cages. But you know, Kelly, um, they say that those people are dangerous, mm. right? And those people have to go back. Um, and we know what they mean when they say those people. Um, we know who they're talking about because in Onondaga County, 60% of the people in the Justice Center are legally innocent. Yep. Um, and I want to be clear about that number, like over 60% of the people in this Justice Center are legally innocent. Um, but they were there before this law was passed. Mm -hmm. um, and when they were there, they had to make decisions that would inevitably impact the rest of their lives. Decisions that could have meant that they couldn't live in public housing. Decisions that meant that they couldn't get student, um, I don't want to say student loans because no one should get student loans, but <laughs> that, that, that they couldn't get financial aid services, that they couldn't get grants, right? That precluded them from being able to have the general benefits that everybody has. Um, and in a city like Syracuse, where we're a city that's hyper-segregated, a city that is the ninth has the, high, the ninth highest concentration of poverty amongst blacks and Latinos in the country, city that 
has one of the most underfunded school districts in the state of New York that New York State Supreme Court says is unconstitutional and violates their state educational rights. Um, we live in that community. We are certainly a community that is more than that. We are a community that is vibrant and resilient in spite of that. Um, but when they say roll back, what they're saying is, let's ensure that we further create a system that these folks can't participate like everybody else can. Yeah. And we need to be clear about what they're actually saying. And so, Monica, if you could talk a bit about that. Um, you know, our key human rights does a tremendous amount of work. If you can talk about the work that you all do, but importantly, why is this moment here? And why is it essential that we push forward and say we're not gonna go back? It's funny that you said push forward and not go back when um, our president, Kerry Kennedy, was in Albany um, in January rallying on behalf of bail reform. She was saying, roll forward, don't roll back. And so um, <laughs> I was there, so I heard I it. wanted to make that a T-shirt, but it hasn't happened yet. So um, I think now is the time because as goes New York, as goes the country. So if New York falls victim to this fear mongering, if people start to come up with these creative and not so creative ways to continue to cage people, then that will become the trend um, nationwide. And so that's why New York is really the stopgap. We have to fight for this. We have to continue to fight and think forward and think that this really this is just setting the stage for more bail reform. And we definitely need to move, roll forward. Uh, we can't at this time give in to all of this fear mongering. What we know is working about this is that so many people are able to return to their communities, they're being able to participate in their cases, they're able to care for their children, they're maintaining their jobs, and they're on the path to becoming and maintaining themselves as productive citizens. It makes absolutely no sense to go back to this um, racist, wealth-based detention system that we had in New York State. Um, in fact, it should be broadened to completely end pre-child detention, um, not only in New York, but you know nationwide. And so that's what we're working towards. And so we really feel strongly that New York is the place where everyone has to stand strong, buckle up, you know, and prepare ourselves and really fight against any efforts at all to um, roll back any of the bail laws or to create some type of dangerousness standard. Because we know that those things will only result in more people who are protected by the Constitution, who are presumed innocent, being locked away in cages indefinitely to the, uh, into their cases. And that just leads to more forced pleas and disruption in our community. So we're really dedicated to um, moving this law forward and, and to doing all that we can to contribute to that. Nicole wanted to add to that. She gets the privilege. She's sitting right next to me. Yeah, I think it's Monica who always uh, inspires. So I, I think, um, Right now, we're what we set aside to do, you know, and for the past three years is three things. One, we wanted to ensure access to due process, meaning that we do believe in this principle of presumption of innocence. Um, we do believe that can lead to the road to safety and to justice. Two, we wanted to reduce our reliance on cash and money. Money should not be the determinant for our liberty. And three, we realize there is race-based detention and it's unequivocal. And so we've got to do, we have to figure out ways to put that in check, but then also to do less harm and to address those stark racial disparities. And so with those three goals in mind, it's not a conceptual impossibility for us to be able to envision what we've, what we've already seen happen in these past two months, meaning that people are being released, 
Thousands are being released. They're assisting their defense. They're going back to their homes and, and, and being reunited with their families. People are being treated innocent before guilty. That's not a conceptual impossibility because that actually has been the reality for anyone who was charged with the vast majority of charges for decades if they could afford their release. And so when people tell us, like, wait, what's at stake? I don't know. What You all put a shock in the system, um, and I think you all didn't really uh, get the public up to speed. No, 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 no. Trust me. There have been communities for years who have been fighting this, been saying that release has been an option for people. Pretrial liberty has been an option for people. The, all we did with this new law, all we did with this new law was say that the same things that are accessible to those who are wealthy should be accessible for anyone who's charged with those same charges who can't afford it. But we can't, and I want to be clear, with the rollbacks, what is complicating things, what's obscuring things, is that just as much as we've said that, yes, there's racism entrenched within our system, there's, like, there's this criminalization against poverty entrenched within our system, there's a ra there are racist and unfair ways to actually do reform. And so you can't hide and cloak a reform, good, well-intended um, effort, and say that, okay, this is going, this should be um, accepted no matter what. What we're saying is, don't, we need to do this in an equitable way. We want, we want money to be, not to no longer be the, the determinant, but we're not gonna say that we should settle for race to be the determinant. And that's what's at stake right now. We are at stake of rolling backward, but then also uh, falling victim to this false narrative, false vision of justice, false vision of, of what safety is by saying that we're gonna trade off money for race-based detention. And that's not what communities want, that's not gonna lead us to safety, and that's definitely not gonna lead us to any sort of justice. Yes, yeah. I think one of the tricks out there is this idea of, well, we just need a test for dangerousness. That's what, right? So dangerousness was not part of what bail was supposed to be ever. It hasn't been since 1970-something. But I hear people talking about, well, if only the judge could make a risk determination, dangerousness. There is no such thing that, that exists that is not race-based. We actually see in our work that there are these assessment tools that are put upon people where it's supposed to assess their risk, their risk of recidivism, um, their, their dangerousness. And it's been proven that these um, supposedly objective um, assessment tools are deeply embedded in race and in where you live. For example, some of the questions that determine if you're a higher risk are, how many times have you been arrested? Well, depending on where you live and the color of your skin, you may have been arrested more times, not because you did wrong, but because of where you live. So race is embedded in these tools, which I think are really tricky because I think that the average person would like to think that there's this magic eight ball tool that will assess dangerousness and risk, and we can rely on that as opposed, or judges can rely on that, and they simply don't exist, and perpetuate the same systems of race-based incarceration, but under this trick, under this guise that there's this magic tool that we can rely on instead of um, the reforms. Scott, do you want to further talk about this? Um, I have responses to these questions, but everyone oh, is definitely hitting on them. Um, I just, well, I guess I'll just reiterate, you know, I. Um, I think, yeah, there's two fundamental principles that are supposed to undergird our justice system that are at stake here. One is that you're, you know, everyone has talked about it, you're um, presumed innocent until proven guilty. When you're treated as guilty until proven innocent, we've talked about the consequences. People's lives are at stake, um, their families, their jobs, their financial well-being, not only themselves, but their families, especially families that have to put up money for folks to get out. Um, 
but then the other is that we're all treated equally under the law. And we know that if we go back to, to the, um, the system that we had, we're, we weren't treating people equally under the law. Um, from a class standpoint, you know, poor people were more likely to be incarcerated. And then um, there's a, these racial disparities. I think the one thing that I would, I would share is um, Forward.us, who I think we're going to watch a video from them later, where they, they released a report that showed that prior to um, the, uh, this bail reform taking place, that uh, white folks were in New York City 9% more likely to be released. Um, and uh, outside of the city, 20% more likely to be released uh, without, a, a, without a money bail. So the tweaks that they're talking about in Albany are the exact things that would put racial bias back into the system, right? So uh, the idea that to, to return more, dis um, um, more, more discretion, thank you, <laughs> to judges, right? Uh, these are the people who were, their discretion was leading to um, these uh, inequalities, right? Uh, the idea of putting dangerousness in, right? You know, the, the law only applies to misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies. So why, how are you assessing dangerousness on <coughs> charges that are typically not really associated with physical danger to other people? You, you know, you're looking at the person standing in front of you in the courtroom, and you're determining how dangerous they are based on what you can gather about their background, who they are, where they came from, how they talk, um, all the things, right? So I just think that we have to be super vigilant. And I double down on what Monica said. As a national organizer who's trying to move this type of stuff all over the country, I don't want to put pressure on y'all here in New York, but <laughs> you know, if we um, can't hold our ground here, it's going to have ramifications all across the country. Um, so. You know, it's all at stake. You know, basically the fundamentals of who we say we are as a country uh, are at stake here in New York in this fight. Um, and you know, I'm just excited that even just looking in this room and see how many people uh, wanted to come out and and you know figure out how we can push back is, is what's giving me hope right now. That was a clap for you, by the way. <laughs> Before we get to our last question, and then we'll go to the audience. Uh, I want to make this point about the issue about dangerousness and show it in a very clear example. Dylan Roof shot up a church, massacred many people. They took him to Burger King. Took him to Burger King. Tamir Rice had a toy gun, was 13 years old. He would not be able to come to a forum like this. This is what we're talking about and the implications about the issue about discretion and dangerousness. Because when you see a boy like Tamir Rice, he's dangerous. But you see a young man who shot up people dead in a church on Sunday after they welcomed him into their space, he's gone. I'm sorry, he's not. So again, to be clear, the issue that we're trying to see in front of us is that this problem of dangerousness suggests that black and brown people, irrespective of their age, are perceivably more dangerous than a white person. Even when you have clear, compelling evidence, like a gun at a church and people who are no longer here. So that's what's at stake in this conversation. And we can't allow ourselves to be fooled and bamboozled again, because they tried this in the 90s. A lot of us forgot about the crime bill. We had pictures of Joe Biden earlier, but we don't even talk about that. <laughs> a lot of people, in fact, it's coming back up in people's faces over having a conversation 
about the crime bill. We're having a conversation about the impact that the decisions that happened before using these tactics and strategies, what it meant for our communities and how it devastated our communities and how it's still devastating our communities until today, that we're still reeling from these issues until today. As was said in the video earlier, family separation in America is as age old as America because we've been doing it and we have newer iterations of it every year. We invent a new way to separate families. And so what's at stake? is, as you say, whether or not we are going to be this multiracial, pluralistic society, or are we going to continue to be a race-based class system? That is what we're fighting for. And we have a lot of weight ahead of us. But it's appropriate that the last question, um, and we didn't, I mean, I kind of planned this, but I didn't plan it like this. It's appropriate that the last question uh, is really open to the audience. And it's about what we as community people can do. What can community leaders do to push back or, or interrogate false uh, public narratives that pit safety or the guise of safety and, and efforts to address racial biases entrenched, uh, entrenched in our criminal legal system. Um, we have a leader here. I'm going to ask her to come up in a moment. Um, I want to let her go first and then the panel. Uh, folks, we have Senator Rachel May here today, who is <laughs> been a champion of this issue in the state. Um, and has been committed to making sure. Well, let me not, let me stop talking. Let me let you talk. Here you go. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody who's here. It's great to see you all uh, out here about this really important issue. And I've learned a lot. I, I just all of you, I appreciate all of you for what you've been saying. Um, so you just asked me to talk about why I was proud to vote for the uh, reforms that we passed last year. The package included the bail reform, it included speedy trials, which we haven't talked about, but people were, trials were just taking years and years. So if people were locked up pre-trial, they might be in jail for a very long time. And then the discovery reform, which was keeping evidence from the defendant so they didn't know how to plead and didn't know how good a case they might have, and so they ended up pleading guilty to something that they, that they didn't need to. It's okay. So, um, I guess I want to say, as just playing off the question that Yusuf was raising, that what's been going on is ever since these laws took effect, and really before they took effect, we have had an absolute onslaught of negative, uh, both sensationalist news and fear-mongering and just general opposition to this, these laws that have been targeted at me and my colleagues. All of us are running for re-election this year. We, they see us as vulnerable on this issue, and it has become the big issue in everybody's campaign this year. And a lot of it is just, just sensationalism. A lot of it is just fear-mongering. Some of it has some root in actual events that have happened, and the media is very quick to take those events and play them over and over and over and put them in people's minds. What I need from all of you here is that you don't keep this conversation here in this room, but that you're going out and telling the stories of the 
good things that are coming out of these reforms so that people know that there were reasons why we passed this. It wasn't just because we felt like overthrowing the criminal justice system. It was because there were very serious problems embedded in it that needed to be changed. I ran for office in 2018 because I was so frustrated that this blue state was actually so unprogressive when it came to a lot of our lawmaking. And we made a lot of changes last year, and, and it's predictable that people would be opposed to that and that there would be a lot of backlash to it. So thank you. Thank you, Yusuf. Thank you, Senator. You know, I think common ground in Theoretical plane sounds nice, and I think in, in a normal world you want to come to common ground, but what do we mean in this case when we speak about common ground? And I think the clarity and distinction about being clear about what we mean is important for people. So when we talk about common ground on issues like discovery, and then I'm going to stop talking and pass the mic, but when we talk about common ground on issues like discovery, what we mean is district attorneys should have more time to be able to hold people in jails. If you don't actually have evidence to show a person is guilty, then why are they behind bars? If you, you should need more time to find more evidence because then they just shouldn't be in jail. Um, and I think it's important to, to say that and own that because that's what they mean when they talk about finding common ground. They mean we need more time so we can coerce you longer. Um, when we talk about issues um, about bail and we try to think through what are kind of political fixes that we can make, we get into very murky areas. And I, I want the folks, when we kind of talk about um, bringing us to the close in this portion so we can bring other folks in, when we, when we are talking about and asking people what they should do and how they can be a part of this process, can you talk about that in response to both what the senator said, the kind of larger discourse that is out there, um, and really the necessity that we have to, to imagine a better New York? to imagine New York where we don't result to incarcerating people um, for, 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 for offenses that we may not be able to prove that they're guilty of, that we treat people with human dignity and respect, that we elevate not the worst parts of them, but the best parts of them, um, and that we are a different kind of person. You mentioned Michelle Alexander. She talks about these issues on the legal issue, and she talks about it being a spiritual battle. So we're going to go along the line to let everyone kind of respond before I kind of bring it back here to the questions that folks submitted. Um, and if folks have more questions to submit, please text bail to 225568. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna be quick, because um, I have so many thoughts on this. I think one, we, we need to interrogate what we mean by safety, but we also have to interrogate um, some of how these, pack these proposals are being packaged. To tweak the law, to fix certain operational fixes, or to actually be the most progressive law in the, the country. That's what I heard um, the Senate, not, not you, Senator May, but the leader say. And I think what we just need to make sure for folks here, we just want you to, to say that, like, what is progressive? Anything that would increase pretrial detention, meaning pre increase the jail population, is not progressive putting more resources into jails, using jails as the default choice for a legally innocent population is not progressive and it doesn't lead to safety because we've seen studies to show that the longer people are in pre-child detention, the more of a risk there is, a greater risk there is um, for rearrest. And so we don't want that. The second thing I think you need to interrogate, if someone's saying, here's this progressive proposal, we, or this is a tweak, if it's going to end up in widening racial disparities, again, that's a, that's a step backwards. 
So those two things, use those two, and I do believe those are like the fundamental two core components. If we're putting more resources into jails, that's not what we, we need in terms of progress. And if we're, if we're trying to widen racial disparities or anything that would actually lead to wide racial disparities, even in the best good intent, with the best good intentions, it's still a step backwards. And so I would, we, I would caution you all to contact your, or I urge you all to contact your, your elected leaders and, and put that at the forefront of any sort of um, outcomes of what they may be pushing. I also want to thank the Senator for being here and I appreciate your, your comments. I definitely want to um, also, you know, sh show some love to Vocal. I think mainly for me, you know, color change, I mean, I wouldn't be sitting right here right now. Vocal is the organization. They're um, uh, based in, um, in New York City and Brooklyn, I want to say, but um, they're the organization that reached out to us, you know, when we were trying to pass the legislation and asked us to come in. They organized directly impacted people. Mm -hmm. So I am you know, having not been in Albany, I'm sure that they were very passionate um, when they were there. But I, I want to pick up on, on a, a thread that I heard in your comments, which was that um, there are folks, the folks in, in Albany with the power to decide what's going to happen don't necessarily want to make changes. But the backlash has been so vicious that there's a political calculus happening. There's elections coming up, um, you know, this year. Um, that um, folks feel like their hands are being forced. Um, and that color change, one, we work to make the world less hostile for black folks. And we're very, we're acutely aware that it's not necessarily about convincing people. You know, it's not that the ACLU or RFK Foundation or anybody can just like go and say, hey, stop being racist, it's wrong. Um, <laughs> that we have to build and leverage the political power to, to, to make, the, make folks with power do the right thing, right? Um, and so I think we should just, like, that's the takeaway for me. I'm really just gonna use the last 30 seconds I have to plug uh, justicenotfear.org. It's the tool that we created. We wanted to try to provide some infrastructure for people who want to, to mobilize around this issue. I think criminal justice reform and bail reform are still popular. There's an outsized voice of opposition happening right now, but um, if we are able to not just like preach to the choir, like you know, I think we, maybe we've been doing up here tonight, but we can get the choir to sing at the top of its lungs right now. Um, you know, I think we can we can change that political calculus, and I really appreciate this senator for bringing that reality to us in her comments. Um, so justicenotfair.org, you can sign up to get more updates. You can contact your legislators there. You can report fear-mongering that you may see in the media or elsewhere. Um, you can um, tell your own story or other stories that you may know about the success of the bail reform bill. Um, and so we're, we're try trying to use that. We hope that people will not only go to it, but share it widely um, as a tool for folks to, to fight back right now. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll echo everything that was said. I think um, I would add to that just being curious and looking at data, looking at the various sites, looking at various suit that's done data and sort of fighting fear with, with real science and data. Um, and then I would also say um, to make sure that we're supporting those services in our community that need to be there for when people are released, right? So we know that years ago they closed mental health institutions, but then if there aren't community services for folks, what happened to those folks? Many of them were incarcerated, and so now our jails and prisons become de facto mental health treatment or substance abuse treatment, and that's not what we want. And so making sure that 
um, in addition to everything that's been said, that you're also supporting efforts for um, pre-trial services in our community and making sure that they're rich and that when people leave, they can get um, the supports that they need, be it through employment, which is one of the most protective factors that there are is in terms of recidivism, um, be it mental health, be it treatment, and making sure that you are um, active and in, in your voice and going to Albany and also active in supporting um, funding for those services that need to be there so that this doesn't become a situation where people are released pre-trial and then the services aren't there and then things happen and, and uh, the opposition points to that and says, see, that's why it didn't work. Um, so it needs to be a holistic approach um, uh, as well as making sure, as has been said, that when there is events in Albany, when there's events locally, that you show up. So it's not just our phrases there, but that you show up. And having those real kitchen table conversations with people and engaging people that you know who um, aren't here tonight and may have a difference of opinion and, and using what you've learned and, paying, um, and, and sharing that widely. So uh, from a faith perspective, on a Thursday night, I'm not going to throw a bunch of theological jargon and complicated scripture passages your way. But what I do want to say, though, very simply, is what uh, from out of the wells of, um, of what at least my faith tradition teaches is I'll just share these two words, do justice. Do justice. And somewhere within all of our faith traditions, moral compasses, that element of justice and fairness is there. And it is not just or fair uh, to have a system that disproportionately impacts black and brown bodies in a very negative way. We have to do what is just and what is fair. So then the real question is then uh, for me is, okay, then how do we respond? How do we be, as the brother said over here, part of the choir that helps, that helps this choir to sing? Um, and I think, I think back to uh, in my tradition, I come from the Christian tradition, and Jesus is central to that tradition. And one, there's a very, Jesus had a very real spiritual purpose, yes. But on the ground in his everyday life, Jesus was out organizing a movement against empire. Jesus was taking a stand. Jesus was actively engaged in resisting evil and standing up to the Caesars uh, and to the, and, and the other emperors of the day. Right now, this is uh, this criminal justice system that we have uh, is a form of is is a manifestation of institutionalized empire. So, what can we do to be to so if 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 we're to use Jesus as as an example, no matter how you see him, uh, then that means that we have to become be part of the choir too. Uh, so, uh, one thing I love about uh, my congregation, Plymouth Church, um, is that they make sure I talk about the issues. If I don't talk about the issues, um, I will at some point or another hear about it. <laughs> and I think it's important as a faith community, whatever faith community that you are a part of, to make sure that, um, that, uh, that we all are talking about this. And in the very least, what we can do is simply invite others along for the journey to moments like this, for where we have opportunities for education and opportunities to be able to engage with others uh, who are also concerned about this issue as well. Uh, so, uh, so I think if we bring others along, I think that's a very simple act to be able to help build this choir that the brother was talking about over here. Thank you.
not sure how to follow that, but um, I, I will say, I was gonna say pre before you started that one thing is to really, we need faith-based communities all over the state of New York to really get behind this fight. But the other thing is that um, when I was a public defender and recently RFK had an incident with a woman in Las Vegas in the fall, where she was held on a very high bail. Um, and her family was able to raise enough money to get a bail bondsman and to actually get her free from jail after she had been in there for over 12 months. However, her attorney, who was a public defender, had lobbied in favor of bail reform in the previous uh, session. And so there was not a bail bonds person or company that would even allow her family to post that money. And so we had to come in and post um, the cash, the full amount cash bail. And so I say that to say that people who are caught up in this moment in the criminal legal system oftentimes cannot use their voice. Criminal defense attorneys oftentimes cannot um, tell you the stories of their clients who are going back to work and all those things because they have attorney-client privilege and because they're still under the thumb of the law. And so that's why we really need each and every one of you to be those voices, to speak out for folks who are being held, who are being detained, and who ultimately are presumed innocent and have a right to be free. And so that's why these sorts of events are super important, that you spread the word, that you get your friends, that you show up in Albany and you say, you know, we're not gonna stand for this. You can call, you can text, you can tweet, you can email, but um, one thing that we hear from legislators is we're only hearing voices of opposition. And so we all need to join in a mass choir and say, we support you, we're behind you, and we believe that New York can truly be a progressive state. Thank you. And, and on, the, on the tip of trying to do something, and, and I know some folks are beginning to leave before you go, um, we have a few action items for you. I think it's essential that there are postcards that are in the lobby. Um, please fill them out so they can get to the elected officials to say we don't want to roll back this law. That's one little small thing that you can do. Um, and so if you can fill those postcards out, we will send it out for you, so don't take it. We'll pay for the postage, free of us. Um, <laughs> but it's essential that you do fill out those postcards so that the senator and her colleagues and the governor can hear the voice of the community to be a counter to that, to that voice. Um, we had some questions from folks who posted up, and I do want to you know, give them a chance to, to be shared. Um, many people in prison are victims of mental health issues. As a mental health professional, um, I know services are unavailable or have long wait lists. Can someone speak to this concern? Well, I think one, um, I think this goes back to what Senator May said, that if there are ice events that folks have concerns about, I, I'll say that there have been some events that have happened that I've had concerns about. Not because it's attributed or it's a, there's a connection to the bail law, but because it's a connection to what we've always wanted to unearth, which is this lack of services for people who, have mental health who need mental health services, who need supportive, affordable housing, who need to be in rehabilitative, um, truly rehabilitative programs. And so none of us are saying that, you know, Many of us want, like, care about safety. Safety is a fundamental desire shared by many. It's just the way we, we view safety, safety for all, and true community safety. And so uh, what we're urging folks to do is highlight what are these gaps that have nothing to do with the bail law that passed, but have everything to do with what the bail law was trying to obscure, which is 
the failure of our government to be able to shore up these services that don't, shouldn't be, um, lack thereof, shouldn't be criminalized, but should actually uh, uh, be provided for. I would just say briefly on like community reinvestment, if you think about the amount of money that people spend to house people in jails, and like here the reduction in incarceration has been close to 30%. So you think about that and how that could be reinvested into true community services. I, I've worked in many jails across the country, and I can tell you that there's no, I don't wanna say there's never any treatment in jail, but jail is not the place to receive behavioral health or substance abuse treatment. Um, people need treatment in their communities because that is the place that they will return. And so we just really need to focus on shifting the narrative from using all of our resources for mass incarceration and going to, um, reinvestment in our communities, providing these necessary services so that people can remain and that everyone can be truly safe in their homes. There was a question um, that, that kind of came about, and this will be the second to last question that we'll have, but it was from someone who was in the audience um, who, this weekend, you know, we were trying to make sure folks go here and, and participate and want to celebrate the folks who, who did come and who are still here, so we'll give you all a round of applause, please. But a few of us went to a National Action Network meeting um, in, uh, in Syracuse at Willow Pulp Church, and it was a really good event, it was a really good discussion, and if you don't go to man meetings on Saturday uh, mornings, you probably should get there because they really do a good job uh, of trying to elevate these issues. But Ms. Anna Morris, um, who is you know, a leader in our community and, and, and as she says, humbly is learning, um, has a lot of wisdom to share to, for us. And then she said something at that meeting that struck a chord with me. Um, and I felt it was incumbent upon me to ask her to speak today. So I'm gonna walk over to Miss, Miss Anna um, and give you the mic just to say a few words and, um, and then we'll go to the panel and we'll, we'll close for the evening. Good evening. Thanks very much, uh, um, Yusuf. And um, I'm standing here and I was listening to the pastor talk about Jesus and uh, the things that's happening to us. It cannot be eradicated in the natural. These are spiritual battles. They're serious. They're costing lives. And so on Saturday at our meeting, and it really kind of got intense talking about the racial uh, issues that we are dealing with. And um, it just came to me so very clear. Racism is rooted in intimidation and manipulation. Can you say that again? It's rooted in intimidation and manipulation. And the bottom of that also is fear. I sat here this evening and I listened to even, even the young man that was on, on the uh, video talk about fear. Fear is not natural. As much as we have to deal with it on a daily basis, it is not natural. It is the enemy. So we look at each other. We need to understand and know if there's any fear there, it's not coming from them, it's a spirit that they're operating in. And we can, we do as baptized born again believers that believe that what God said 
to us. Fear no evil. He did not give us the spirit of fear, but of love, power, and a sound mind. So I think from what I heard here tonight, and I wish you could, I just want you to hear me with your heart. We are struggling with that enemy, fear. Once we become knowledgeable and expose that demon, I'm keeping it real, demon of fear, then we're gonna be educated on a level that we couldn't even imagine. We'll know how to confront the enemy, which is fear. And all of the things that is happening and running rapid in this land, intimidation and manipulation, we can no longer allow ourselves to be afraid to confront fear. Face it just like it is and get the knowledge we need, which is spiritual, to help us to be overcomers. Because we have been created. We have been created by our creator, our heavenly father. We can no longer. I see it every day. It's, it's just so many people are being destroyed because they're afraid to acknowledge that I don't have to be scared. We don't have to bow to fear. Thank you. Thank you. She said thank you, but thank you. Um, this is gonna be the last question that we have for tonight. Um, again, we, wanna, we want this to not just be a moment for us to have a dialogue with each other, which was important and necessary. It wasn't just a chance to fellowship, which I hope folks got a chance to do, fellowship. Um, but this is really an important moment that we have. As, as we said, the stakes are high. Yes. The budget is gonna be passed, and the governor has said that he is not gonna support a budget that doesn't address some amount of changes to this law. And we have to be clear of mind to say that we're not gonna go backwards, that we're gonna move forward, that we're not gonna allow this moment to be a moment where we are gonna be the ones who are gonna take the burden, and we're gonna be the ones that are gonna be impacted in such disparate and negative ways. So again, I wanna implore you and encourage you that if you haven't filled out a postcard, to please do so because it's essential that we let them know with resounding voices that we are not okay with this, that we are actually going to overcome the voices that are trying to intimidate us and manipulate us into having fear. Right. To the last question that we're gonna take for this evening. Um, many, uh, read that one already. Um, someone said lately that they've been spending time in court and, and they've noticed that everyone who is out on bail has shown up for their court date. Crazy, right? Um, the law's actually working how it was designed. Um, is anyone tracking appearance rates to battle the argument that people uh, will abscond if released from pretrial detention? Yes, we are. And I think this is, um, this is one of the biggest gaps in the law that passed, and this is not due to any failure of the advocates sitting on the stage. We were pushing for uniform, comprehensive collection of data um, because we saw this on the horizon. We knew that this is nothing new, the, the backlash we're seeing, the opposition that we're seeing, this is dated, and it's, it's been tried before. These tricks are, are old. Um, and so we knew that there's going to be some a great degree of misinformation. We wanted to be able to counter it with what's actually happened because happening because we don't want to exploit or dumb down the public um, with these one-off cases or these one-off uh, narratives that are being sensationalized. 
to, uh, to somehow reflect what's happening. And so we're pushing for a law to be able to collect, to, to require a comprehensive statewide collection of data on who's being, continuing to face bail, who's, who's going to still be in pretrial detention, how long are they, are they there, looking at that and, and tracking it by counties. But to do that also to um, identify where resources are needed, to be able to tailor like, okay, Onondaga County needs this X amount of resources because people are coming out and they need housing or they need mental health services or they're in, there's a backlog on, on being able to get into this certain program. Right now we don't have that and I think that's also an outcry, a reason for, for another reason for us to put pause on these rollbacks because what that means is that the lawmakers, the governor, is pushing for a new law without any data, not driven by any data, not informed by any data, but honestly driven by what's being peddled by, from some of these editorial boards, some of these reporters that have sensationalized certain stories and use the name of safety and use the name of justice in a perverted, twisted kind of way. And so what we want to do is counter that with what's happening in reality with the truth. And so we hope to see more data come out. I know there's some, a report that's may come out um, in, in Rochester County, uh, but we're, we're, we're all trying to call our resources together, but we shouldn't have to do this for something this important. Um, one of the things that we do know is that, um, so community bail fund, right? So that is, I think, one of the things that you had talked about earlier when there's these bail funds where um, people can get bailed out. If they don't have the resources, then there's something called a community bail fund. And if you think about that, then the individual defendant doesn't necessarily have skin in the game, right? They haven't gone to a bail bondsman. They're not putting up their own money. And so the opposition would say, they're not going to show up to court. Somebody just gifted them this bail money, and they get to go home. What we do know from past data of looking at that is that um, 95, about 95% 95 of the people whose bail was paid by community bail fund showed up to court. So we're still waiting for the data for these new reforms, but we know historically that even when uh, the community bail fund steps in to bail someone out, 95% of people um, show back up to court. In October of 2018, RFK did a mass bailout of 105 people on Rikers Island and um, spent approximately $1.2 million. And when um, people were released, they were given a three-month prepaid cell phone and a monthly Metro card. And we found that the vast majority, the complete vast majority um, of people who were bailed out during the mass bailout, again, they had no skin in the game. They did not know us. They had no allegiance. They didn't have to participate in a program or anything. They just got to be free, um, returned to all their court dates. And so we have shown that people can just return to court. What do they need? They need reminders. They need, um, and not reminders that are mean and that say, if you don't show up to court, you'll, there'll be a warrant. They need one that's that, like you get from your dentist that says, hi, this is your lawyer, just reminding you that I expect to see you before judge such and such on Tuesday, right? And then if they have an issue, then they can respond back to their lawyer and say, hey, I may need some childcare. I may have a childcare issue, may I go first? Right. So we know that with very small things, people will return to court. And they and because people don't want to be in the community with warrants, they don't want to have to live in fear. They want to do what they know is right and they want to have their case resolved. So they will come back to court. I want to give everyone a round of applause for, for being here for tonight. Uh, thank you again, please. Join us. This is not the end. We have a, another video just to, to kind of close us, to show what it is, again, we're asking for folks to do. Fill out a postcard, engage in the conversation. There's a, 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 a lobby day on Tuesday of, of this week, and uh, of next week, and there's information out there for folks. 
Thank you for coming, um, and, and we hope to see you again. Thank you. The American system of mass incarceration. A system that tears communities apart. Jails, innocent people. A system that punishes people who are poor. And targets black and brown families. Our communities lost out time. And people lost their lives. But then we learned then something. Last year, we passed bill reform. A historic step in fixing our broken justice system. Tens of thousands more legally innocent New Yorkers can now stay at home with their family, working their jobs, not sitting in a cell waiting for their day in court. But some of the officials are already trying to undo these reforms, caving to the same fear tactics they got us in the first place. Really? We came all this way just to go back? Don't give in. No rollbacks, no things, no changes. Let's move justice forward. Thank you.